0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 207. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You want to find all those things yourself, just go to my webpage, Brian McLanahan. That's B-R-I-O-N McLanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly. Uh, also, and you'll get some emails from me. It's not a lot, but you'll get some. Also, you can support the Brian McClanahan show at Brian forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the help keep these lights on now that you're seeing. If you're watching on YouTube. Help keep the podcast going. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And if you do enroll, you get the best deals on future courses when they are released. And so I've got a new course coming out in the spring, Reconstruction and Recreation. It is an awesome course. You're really going to like it. And, of course, while you're there, you can purchase one of the five classes that I have available. If you use the coupon code PODCAST, you get 10% off all the time. Um, so use that coupon code, get 10% off, but I've got a course on American constitutions, one on the war, one on secession, one on the Declaration of Independence, and uh, one on Alexander Hamilton. You can also support the Brian McLanahan Show by going to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com, LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Click on that, go through that link, and if you do sign up, you throw a few pennies my way as, ho- as well. Um, and, of course, that's a great website, great resource, near 20 classes, uh, philosophy, economics, history. I teach there. Kevin Goodsman, Tom Woods, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, uh, Bob Murphy. A lot of good stuff there. So you want to go to learntruehistory.com and get that subscription. And then, finally, you can get your Brian McLean Show gear, your log- my logo on stuff, if you go to redbubble.com, do a search for my name. A lot of cool stuff out there. Stickers, wall plates, skins for your phone, clocks, T-shirts. Cool stuff. Mugs. A lot of great stuff. So, going out to redbubble.com, get those materials. Okay. Let's talk about the topic for the day, which is education. Education. We want education. So, actually, that's the wrong thing. It would be, we need information. Information. Who are you? The new number two. So, um... Here we have uh, several things I want to talk about, and uh, <laughs> I have about five things here in front of me that I want to I want to reference. And if you're watching on the uh, on the webcam here on the for YouTube, you see that. But I actually want to start with uh, setting this up and explaining why education in America is so bad. Okay, and. That's the general theme of this. And the general theme goes back to one particular principle, and that is nationalization. You can almost guarantee that if something is wrong in America, it's because we've centralized it. Right? In whatever way, it's because it's been centralized, something is wrong. Now, centralization, I mean, you could say, well, centralization is not always a bad thing. Uh, you know, we want, we want more efficiency. Efficiency is the mark of an industrial society. And so uh, you could say, well, I mean, industrialization is good, gives us all these cool things like lights and all these stuff that we have. Um, but what at what costs at times is, is the question. And nobody wants to go back to a pre-industrial age. Now, I guess the, the uh, crazy uh, greens do, some of the crazy greens. But most people want a balance between these things. They want to find a balance between industrialization, the problems with uh, with industrialization and what that does to the human soul and the human character Uh, And also the benefits of it, which is better medicine, better comfort, uh, these type of things. So the fact that we can do this podcast, um, those are good things about industrialization. So there is this idea of efficiency. You know, when you have an agrarian society, it's not very efficient (laughs) at times. And this is one thing that northerners, when they came into the South after the war, they figured out. uh, The South was pretty inefficient on some things. I mean, you, you go by a different clock. It's a different pace of life. And so it wasn't a a pace that they were used to. And they complained about it incessantly. They complained about labor. They complained about the the pace of life. They complained about all of it. And so the idea is we need to get this efficient life set in place. Uh, And that's, that's the mark of industrialization, efficiency. So centralization is more efficient. And it's because it's more efficient, it's better, it's more productive, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we've seen what centralization can do to our financial system. When you centralize, you create a central banking system. You create this type of of process. And particularly when you put the central banking system and you fuse that with a central government that's way out of control and too large and too nasty, you create a great big centralized mess. Well, that's Hamiltonianism, right? So education is the same way what's happened in education over the years is that everything has become centralized and that was not the design of the founding generation now it doesn't mean there wasn't some discussion of this okay and so i'm going to talk about that and talk about where we need to go this is a think locally act locally episode so i'm going to talk about where we need to go with this but first i want to i want to focus on a couple of pieces that were published within the last few weeks one is in the New Yorker, um, and it was. It's entitled "The Decline of Historical Thinking." Now, I would argue that Americans haven't really declined in historical thinking; they just don't know anything about what they think about history. See, that's the real problem. That's the real problem. And of course, this Nimrod Eric Alterman at the New Yorker thinks it's all Donald Trump's fault. Right? This is he. He's just an idiot. And he, and he says some things in here that are silly. So you've got that piece. And then on the, on the other hand, you have a piece that was published by uh, Michael Knowles in the, on Foxnews.com entitled Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Voice of an Ignorant Generation. These two things actually work hand in hand. They're both talking about historical ignorance. One is blaming the right. One is blaming the left. Um, now, it's not really blaming the left. Well, it is. I mean, for indoctrination. Because that's what you get in colleges and universities now is indoctrination. You don't get real knowledge, particularly in your, quote-unquote, soft sciences, which I've already talked about. History is not a social science. History is humanity. But still, it's considered one of these soft sciences, okay? So I want to put these two pieces together because they're so interesting to do that. And then I'm going to talk about nationalization of education and how how bad that actually is, okay? Okay. and then there's a couple pieces that have to do with uh, morality and uh, how nationalization is factored into that. Okay, So uh, the, there's just so much stuff here. It's, it's, I'm, so, I'm, just, I'm just so excited to do this. Okay, so uh, we'll start with this New Yorker piece uh, by Eric Alterman. I have no idea who Eric Alterman is, but he sounds like an idiot. Okay, so having ignored questions of economic inequality for decades. Economists, first of all, that first sentence. When have when has anyone on the left or in, even in mainstream ignored questions of economic inequality for decades? I mean it's all we hear about. Uh, you know, we got to tax more, we gotta tax more, we gotta spend more, we got social welfare. We had it for eight years under Obama. When has anybody ignored this stuff? And we had compassionate conservatism under Georgia. We had we had we had to bail people out. We had to bail all kinds of things out. I mean, the banks got bailed out, but we had to bail out other people too. I mean, there's We've talked about economic inequalities till I think people are tired of it. That's one of the problems. Okay, economists and other scholars have recently discovered a panoply of effects that go well beyond the fact that some people have too much money and many don't have enough. Um, some people have too much money. Hmm. Inequality affects our physical and mental health. That's only because if you think about it all the time, then you're mentally deranged. Our ability to get along with one another and to make our voices heard and our political systems accountable. And, of course, the futures that we can offer our children. So economic inequality makes it to where we can't get along with each other. I mean, there was a lot of poor people at times in America that got along just fine with people that had money. I mean, this is the Marxist dialectic that says you can't get along. I do not refer, okay, lately I've noticed a feature of economic inequality that has not received the attention it deserves. I call it Intellectual inequality. I do not refer to the obvious and uh, obvious fact that some people are smarter than others. Well, at least he admits that, like everybody, but Eric Alterman, he's admitting that he's not very smart. But rather to the fact that some people have the resources to try to understand our society, while most do not. Last year, Benjamin M. Schmidt. A professor of history at Northwestern University published a study demonstrating that for the past decade, history has been declining more rapidly than any other major, even as more and more students attend college. With slightly more than 24,000 current history majors, it, it's accounts, it accounts for between 1% and 2% of bachelor's degrees, a drop of about a third since 2011. Well, this is actually not a bad thing okay, because, uh, because people, in some ways, I mean, look, I love history. I teach history, teach history in the college environment. Um, but it is very difficult to get a job with a history degree. Now, if you know how to market yourself, you can do it. But people are focusing on more practical degrees. Now, we can talk, again, literature, all these. There's this there's this strain that says, well, a liberal arts degree is going to help you uh, be a better writer. It's going to help you be more, a better critical thinker. All these things are true, 100% true. But you also have to, the corresponding fact in that is you have to learn how to market yourself. Because the jobs for history majors, if you just want to teach history or do something in history, are Few and far between. You're going to have to go do something else, and people don't necessarily realize that. The decline can be found in almost all ethnic and racial groups and among both men and women. Geographically, it is most pronounced in the Midwest, but it's present virtually everywhere. There's a catch, however. It's boom time for history at Yale, where it is the third most popular major in other elite schools, including Brown, Princeton, and Columbia, where it continues to be among the top declared majors. The Yale History Department intends to hire more than a half dozen faculty members this year alone. Meanwhile, and I, and I can only guarantee what they're going to be in. Meanwhile, the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, Bernie L. Patterson, recently promised that the school's history major be eliminated and, and that at least one member of his tenure factory faculty be dismissed. Of course, everything gets more complicated when you look at the fine print. Lee L. Willis, the chair of the History Department, told me that the chancellor's proposal is a budget-cutting measure in response to the steadily declining number of declared majors. But it's really about the need to reduce the faculty from 14 to 10, and this means getting rid of at least one tenured member. To do that, it's necessary to disband the department. A spokesman for the university said that UW-Stevens Point is exploring every option to avoid laying off faculty and staff members. The remaining professors will be placed in a new department that combines history with other topics. Stevens Point in Wisconsin's Northwoods educates many first-generation college students, and in the past, the history department has focused on teaching, training teachers. Willis pointed out that after Scott Walker, the former governor, led an assault on the state's teachers' unions, getting uh, gutting benefits and driving around 10% of public school teachers out of the profession, a teaching career understandably looks considerably less attractive to students. I am hearing a lot. What kind of job am I going to get with this? My parents may be switch, Willis said. There's a lot of pressure on this particular generation. But he also noted a recent rise in declared history majors in this past semester, from 76 to 120. This perception of a one-way trend and will whittle down to nothing is, what I'm not, is, what I'm not, is not what I'm seeing, he said. The steep decline in history graduates is most visible for beginning 2011-2012. Evidently, after the 2008 financial crisis, students felt a need to pick a major in a field that might place them on a secure career path. Almost all the majors that have, been, have seen growth since 2011... Smith noticed in a previous study, are on the STEM disciplines, and including nursing, engineering, computer science, and biology. MIT and Stanford are making a big push in the sciences, Alan McHale, the chair of the history department at Yale, told me. Other universities have tended to emulate them, no doubt, because that's what excites the big founders these days. And with most with their money coming comes a prestige that gives a university its national reputation. Now here's where it gets really fun. David Blight who, as you might know on this particular, if you've listened to my podcast, you know I don't really like David Blight. David Blight, a professor of history at Yale and the director of its Gilder-Learman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, tells a similar story when it comes to funding. In a recent meeting with a school administrator, he was told that individual funders were all looking to fund STEM programs, and Blight said, it's the funders that drive things. Well, first of all, look at the title of that chair that he has the director of the Gilder-Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This is why people are running from history in droves. It's guilt-ridden history. It's not a positive study of America, American culture. It's not objective at all. Now, history has never really been objective. It's always been subjective. But if you just look at what's going on here, why would people want to go into that field? But what you're training are social justice warriors. When you have a department, a division called slavery, resistance, and abolition, you're you're training social justice warriors now. Nothing wrong with talking about abolitionists at all. Nothing wrong with talking about slavery, and even resistance and how people. But to put the two together, slavery and resistance, um, is quite a, is quite problematic. And I think historians that are intellectually honest, which I don't think Blight really is at times, um have uh, have figured out that, I mean, for example, uh, you know, uh, Stanley Fogel uh, wrote a little synopsis of all the history debates on slavery. And he said, look, I mean, uh, there's been a rich mater- amount of material. And, of course, Time on the Cross was hi- hotly debated because it came out with a perspective on slavery that did not fit with the roots perspective that was popular at the time the book was published. Something completely different. Uh, and he said, you know, the, the rich studies that have come out, the rich material um, has shown that, I means resistance and slavery don't necessarily go together at times. But, anyways. Nonetheless, the history majors continues to thrive at Yale, in part because it's a great department with a number of f- nationally known stars, all of whom are expected to teach at an undergraduate level, and in part because it is Yale, where even a liberal arts degree om- opens almost all professional doors. Okay. Yeah, so these kids go to Yale, and they don't have to worry about it. I mean, look, they're already... This is privileged. You want to talk about privileged, okay? And it matters where you go to school. And so, if you go to your state college and you major in history, your chances—I mean, you're really going to have to learn to market yourself. You go to Yale, major in history, it's a little different situation. Go to Columbia or Harvard or Princeton, different situation. As Mikhail said, this, the very real economic pressure students feel today is lessened at Yale. Need blind admissions makes a big difference, together with the sense that a Yale degree in anything will get them the job they want, even at places like Goldman or Medical School. The school's public relations department recently made a promotional video about Fernando Rojas, the son of Mexican immigrants who made a national news a few years ago when he was admitted to all eight Ivy League schools. Rojas, who found an intellectual home at Yale's Center for the Study of Race, uh, Indigency, and Transitional Migration. Uh, intends to pur- pursue a PhD in history. <laughs> so let me again race, indi- indigeniety. Excuse me, indigeniety, which is you know indigenous peoples, and transitional migration. Indigeniety, race, indigen- indigeniety, and transitional migration. He's going to get a PhD in history. Think about that that field. We've got we've got slavery resistance and uh, abolition, and we have this other thing. Center for the State. This is ridiculous. It's, that's, again, SJW stuff, right? Social justice warrior stuff. Yale is producing social justice warriors. They're producing, they're indoctrinating people, not educating people. And, of course, they're right. Though, If you go to Yale, you can use that as a springboard. The reason that students at Yale and places like it can afford to major in history is that they have the luxury of seeing college as a chance to learn about the world beyond the confines of their hometowns and try to understand where they might fit in. That's what history does best. It locates us and helps us understand how we got here and why things are the way they are. Uh, it indoctrinates. History instills a sense of citizenship. It reminds you of, of questions to ask, especially about evidence, Willis told me. In a follow-up email to our conversation, McHale wrote, A study of the past shows us that the only way to understand the present is to embrace the messiness of politics, culture, and economics. There are never easy answers to pressing questions about the world and public life. Bruce Springsteen famously developed a profound p- political consciousness after happening upon Alan Evans and Henry Steele, Commander's a pocket history of the United States, first published in 1942. In his recent Broadway show, Springsteen explained, I wanted to know the whole American story. I felt like I needed to understand as much of it as I could in order to understand myself. Now, here's where it gets fun, too. Donald Trump is the king of not only lies, but also of ahistorical assertions. So you go from talking about, well, history, and then attacking Donald Trump. It's hard to pick a favorite among the thousands of falsehoods that Trump has told us as president, but one recent shocker is when he insisted, ignoring everything we know about the Soviet Union's lawless behavior, that the reason Russia was in Afghanistan was because terrorists were going into Russia. They were right to be there. The usually friendly, Trump-friendly Wall Street Journal editorial page claimed, We cannot recall a more absurd misstatement of history by an American president. Republicans for the past few decades have depended on Americans' inability to make sense of history in judging their policies. How else to explain the fact that under Trump, They have succeeded in turning illegal immigration an excuse for all the country's ills, when any clear historical analysis would demonstrate that it has been the fount of the lion's share of America's innovation, creativity, and economic production. All right, so that last statement, this guy, Alterman, already shows that he's he's an idiot. Uh, But there you go. So it's all Donald Trump's fault that people aren't studying history. And Republicans, conservatives, capitalize on the fact that people don't know anything. Except Fox News, January 14th. Michael Knowles. Um, this is a shorter piece. The majority of American millennials identify as socialists. So if Americans can't figure this out because they're being duped by Republicans, but yet they're all the majority of American millennials are socialists, hmm, what's going on here? Is Altman right? No. According to surveys by both Rees and Roop and the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, that is bad news. The good news is that just 32% of millennials can define socialism. Yeah, because they're a bunch of morons, right? Because uh, the the education system is indoctrination. So uh, we'll get into this. The frequently wrong but never-in-doubt freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez may indeed be the voice of their hair ignorant generation. During an interview in CBS's 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper asked Ocasio-Cortez, when people hear the word socialism, they think Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela. Is that what you have in mind? He neglected to mention the vicious socialist regimes of Cambodia, Ethiopia, Poland, Romania, North Korea, and China, among others. Ocasio-Cortez retorted, of course not. What we have in mind and what my... And my policies most closely resemble what we see in the U.K., and Norway, and Finland, and Sweden. In fact, her economic proposals bear little resemblance to British and Nordic public policy. And then he gets into uh, where he he takes us down. Um, Alexandria Ocasio's ignorance of economics and foreign affairs typifies her generation, despite holding expensive degrees in both economics and international relations from Boston University, kind of like going to Yale. Ocasio-Cortez threw up her hands in exasperation during an interview on Margaret Hoover's Firing Line program, laughing, I'm not the expert on geopolitics. Fortunately for her, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and among a blithely ignorant generation, the lightly educated activist is Congresswoman. The seed of millennial miseducation, which grew into the tree of the lack of knowledge as activist educators substituted ideology for scholarship, is finally bearing its rotten fruit. According to one survey, one-third of millennials believe President George W. Bush killed more people than Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Over 40% of millennials have never heard of Mao Zedong. Another 40% and 30% respectively are unfamiliar with Vladimir Lenin and Che Guevara. Two-thirds of millennials cannot identify Auschwitz, and 22% have never heard of the Holocaust, twice the percentage of American adults on average. Millennials might not know much, but according to a 2016 Harvard survey, they know they don't support capitalism with 51% of young adults rejecting economic freedom. That's because they go to the Center for Slavery, Resistance, and, uh, and Abolition at Yale or, you know, wherever it is, or this other stupid department at Yale. During the 2008 midterm, 18 midterm elections, the Democrat Socialists of America endorsed 42 candidates for local, state, and federal office across 20 states. Of those candidates, 24 won their respective campaigns. And primary campaigns, and 18 won in general elections. Millennials have largely cheered them on. Raised in the United States after the fall of the Berlin Wall, these young Americans have been sheltered both empirically and academically from the myriad horrors wrought by socialism throughout history. And so the problem worsens. Socialism is an economic disease born of envy and ignorance. Unfortunately, both abound in our present politics. The sickness has found an attractive spokeswoman, perhaps, sadly, the voice of her generation. So he's right about that. So what we've got is indoctrination. It's clear in Yale. It's clear at Harvard. It's clear at Columbia. It's clear at anywhere you go, we have indoctrination. Um, And that's a problem because these Ivy League schools do produce PhDs. These Ivy League schools do produce people that go out and teach history then at universities and colleges, and they indoctrinate. And most of them because they can't get a job doing anything else. I think if you're a history major at a smaller school and you learn how to market yourself, you're much more powerful than 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 you know, right? If you learn how to market, you learn how to mass produce, you could change the minds of a lot more people than you could if you went to Yale or Harvard or Princeton or whatever it is. Now, the universities are important. The universities do produce a lot of people and that go out and they vote and they participate in politics and they participate in all these things. And they don't know anything, clearly, as these polls show. They don't really know anything. And one of the problems we've had is not just the universities, but it's also the K-12 through system. And that's because of the, the push for the last few decades to centralize everything when it comes to the social sciences, to history, to our common education system. Let's centralize everything. Let's have one common core. Now, thankfully, many states are starting to reject common core. The real push came in math, where they had these convoluted ways to figure out, you know, 25 plus uh, uh, 37 plus 25, whatever it was, they had to do all these different things to do it instead of just adding 37 and 25 and carrying your numbers. Uh, so people were really upset about that. But more than anything, uh, this also affected history. Now, there was some wiggle room. But a lot, there was a lot of misconceptions about Common Core. There was some wiggle room there where, where states could do some things with history. But generally, uh, what we get is when you have this idea that we need to include everything, you're going to exclude some things. And what you're going to exclude more than anything else are people like George Washington. And I, I pointed this out in, in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. You know, George Washington now is, is at times a sentence. And you see this when, histor- when students are quizzed on who they think are the most important Americans. George Washington sometimes isn't even in the list. You get They know more about Beyonce than they do George Washington because he's a sentence and he's just some old dead white guy, some old white slave owner. This is a real problem in America. He's the Calvin Klein of his generation, like to design uniforms, as uh, Carol Birkin pointed out in a stupid documentary at one point. That was what George Washington was. And so as we get this inclusion, we get the exclusion of some of the really important people that we all need to know about and understand and it's not a positive thing because what we get in inclusion is look how bad American history is all the time. God, I mean, we got this study on abolition and race and slavery, and we've got a study on you know uh, indigenous peoples and uh, you know what was that? Uh, race, transitional migration, indigenous peoples, right? So these are these. This is what people we're creating social justice warriors. We're not creating people that know anything. They've just been taught slogans and platitudes. Socialism is good. capitalism is bad. Evil white guys. No justice, no peace, whatever it is. That's what we're taught now all the time. That's what you get in history classes. It's not really history. It's not really there to and I, and I know that you know, the, the old, well, we try to teach complexity of things. We try to teach that uh, this stuff is important. It's complex. We've got complexity. They don't teach complexity, they teach their view. And I know they're going to, def- oh, no, 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 no. I get out there and I teach this stuff. I teach these people. I'll never forget I had a, a graduate professor in, uh, at South Carolina um, who gave us about three or four articles to read on American conservatism and said, I really want you all to understand this stuff. I want you to understand America. I mean, I think it's important that we learn American conservatism. And he didn't know anything about it. He knew nothing about it. Nothing. Zero. And this is, I mean, people were, this is what graduate students were getting on American conservatism, right? There was no deeper understanding of it. It was just some surface garbage. But that's what passes for education and intellect, right? That's what we get. So this nationalization of education, and and I'll talk about that in a second, but a couple other pieces. In Politico, there's a piece, Trump calls Bible literacy classes in school great. He wants to uh, ensure that uh, schools get some type of rudimentary, maybe I'll offer a class on the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, and, of course, this is, the Politico piece is, I mean, they're they're very upset about that, as you might imagine. Uh, now, this is a push from the top down. Okay, And I want to talk about top-down education. Again, I'll, I'll get into that with the historical example here. And then you also have a piece in the New York Times by Julia Shiriz, uh, I guess is how you say her name. Raising children without the concept of sin. She thinks it's a good idea to uh, to do that, to have her moral conditions are go to marches. Uh, she was brought up in a very conservative Presbyterian household. And uh, she's glad that her kids don't know sin. They just don't know it. They don't know any of that stuff. They, but they do know how to march for and organize students for Hillary at their school, their elementary school. Isn't that great? Isn't that fantastic? Uh, and again, this is our top-down indoctrination. This girl, went. she went to a to a uh, a Christian college. So she rejected all that. She doesn't even speak to her parents anymore. It is the dislocation in society that I think is driving some of the stupidity and nonsense that we have. Now, let's talk about this idea of national standards, though, because this is not something new. The idea that we should have some type of nationalization of things. We should have some standards. Yeah, I mean, the... Common Core, the idea we should have some national standards. Uh, All this goes back actually to the Washington administration, George Washington. George Washington set aside money when he died to found a university in the city of Washington. Um, uh, He he actually advocated some type of, a few times in speeches, advocated uh, a national university try to have some national standards. And when people talk about this, they say, well, there you go. The the founding generation believed in centralization of education, except they didn't really. What they believed is that there should be a center, uh, that that should be kind of a fountain for all of this stuff. Um, They didn't think it was was, uh, constitutional for the general government to put it anywhere, other than in Washington, D.C., to spend any money on education, other than in Washington, D.C. In fact, that was James Madison's position, well, I, I look at this, I see that we can perhaps put this thing in Washington. Um, because, as he said in his, this is in uh, 18, let's see, 1811. Uh, a uh, Congressman Mitchell from New York uh, actually read part of, of Madison's uh, proposal in February of 1811. And he said, look, I can't find... Uh, Madison says, "Quote, but it immediately occurred that under the right to legislate exclusively over the district wherein the United States has fixed their seat of government, Congress may erect university at any place within the ten-mile square seated by Maryland and Virginia. This cannot be doubted. However, other there here, however, are other considerations arise. Although there is no constitutional impediment to the incorporation of trustees for such a purpose." At the city of Washington, serious doubts are entertained as to the right to appropriate the public property for its support. The endowment of university is not ranked among the objects for which drafts ought to be made upon the treasury. The money of the nation seems to be reserved for other uses. That's James Madison. So he's saying, yeah, I mean, we could build one there, but we can't really spend any money on it. Um, and so 1803, there was some discussion of it. Of course, John Quincy Adams made it part of the National Republican Platform. All of this is there. All of this is there. Uh, But then you have Roger Sherman saying in 1790, hey, we talked about this in the Philadelphia Convention and it was best decided that we're going to leave all of this to the states. So this brings me back to that piece on Donald Trump and what really should be done here and where Americans should be focusing their attention. We know the universities are corrupt. Look at this piece on Yale. There's a reason people aren't majoring in history. History is a subject that enriches your life. It helps you understand it right. It helps you understand so many things about life. It's like the light switch is off when you don't know history. When you turn it on, when you learn history, the light switch comes on. Or it's like the great big puzzle. The pieces start to fit together. You do understand where you are. Bruce Springsteen was right. I mean, anyone who understands history and studies history and has a passion for it, enjoys it, understands that is the benefit of history. They understand these things. But the important thing about it, History had always been a bottom-up subject. You learned, at first, from your mother's knee about your people, who your family was, the traditions of your family and your society and your group, your clan, your culture. You learned that first from your community. That's where history is, think locally, act locally. You learned the myths of your own people. and These myths were based on reality, right? You learned the stories of your people, the oral traditions. That's what you learned. That's how you learned it. And then you went to the schools, and those schools and the local communities reinforced that because they reflected the community they were sitting in. And uh, it was okay to learn things that weren't part of that. You eventually got that because it was a challenge to your your worldview, and it solidified. It sharpened your pencil. You learned how to confront those ideas. But we know that the centralization, what uh, Albert Taylor Bledsoe would call the Massachusetts version of history, was forced on the rest of the United States because the idea was we needed to ensure that everyone thought one way. Even Jefferson said that what we needed to do with education was ensure that people had the understanding of, the, of English civil liberties, of the British political tradition, of Anglo-American institutions. This is why it was important, and why Ocasio-Cortez really is so dangerous, because you don't understand any of that stuff. And these millennials don't either because they go to these universities and all they're taught is social justice warrior nonsense. This is why people don't want to learn history. It's not positive a positive affirmation of the Anglo-American political and legal tradition is one of the most important things we can do as historians. Yes, there's bad things in history. Yes, people have done bad things. Yes, we all talk about that stuff. But we also need to talk about the positive affirmation. It's not just good stuff started in 1970. Good stuff started in 1215 with the Magna Charta. Good stuff started with the English Bill of Rights. Good stuff started with the American War for Independence. The principle of self-determination, of individual liberty. Good stuff started with those things. Good stuff came out of the founding generation who were flawed men. Rega- uh, never, nevertheless, they were flawed, but there were good things there. And we don't have to sit there and chastise them for all the things that they did that were wrong. From a 21st century perspective, for 18th century men, we don't have to do that. We can be positive about the founding generation, which is now politically incorrect to do. They're called the founding racists by the progressives. We can be positive about these people. We can actually say that you can divorce some. We can look at John C. Calhoun and say, you know, Calhoun was an astute political mind. We may not agree with what he said about slavery. We don't agree with his, the society in which he lived in terms of their institutions. But Calhoun has studied all over the world because he understood government. We can do that. We can look at the war in 1861 as a right of self-determination. And we can say that we don't support slavery, but yet do we support self-determination. We can divorce these things. We can talk about people in American history that should be respected because of the things that they, uh, that they said at times, not always because of the things that they did. Um, and, of course, there are principles behind that, the American principles of self-determination, individual liberty, independence, the Anglo-American political and legal tradition. If you want people to enjoy history, Tell good, positive stories. Stop saying everything is wrong and evil and bad and stop making everything identity and everyone's at each other and everything is conflict. When you do that, you create a situation where people start despising history. Tell the stories. Tell the positive stories. Tell the negative stories, too, but ensure that you balance history in that way. You can't do it with Common Core You can't do it with a national top-down structure because you have people like Yale and others who are going to be directing this stuff. You can't do it with Ocasio-Cortez because she's an idiot. It has to start from the bottom up. So you can teach your children well. There's that old 60s song, Teach Your Children Well, right? You can teach your children well. You can do that, and you can make a positive impact. Think locally, act locally. Change the way we think about history. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I do this stuff. It's why I have McClanahan Academy. It's why I teach it, learn true history. It's why I do those things, because I want to reach more people than just that are going to see me in the classroom. And uh, this is the important thing. Is if we could get anything out of this and think locally, act locally, that would be it. Take it from the bottom up and do your best to teach these things to your own children, to your own family, your own colleagues, and then let it spread from there. It can't come from the top down. You're just going to frustrate yourself and you're going to wear yourself out and run yourself ragged. Think locally, act locally. I'll see you next time on the Brian Planning Show.